Welcome to Running Off the Rails, a podcast about running the game Dungeons & Dragons. Today we'll be discussing running the game for new players. How much might you be able to expect your new players to remember? We'll be talking about the technique of memory slots and how to use them efficiently, so that way your players can always know what's going on. We hope you enjoy. Hey, my name is Ray O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And today we're here to talk to you about running the game Dungeons & Dragons for new players. The reason why we want to talk about this is running the game for new players is completely different from running the game for experienced players. If you're good at one, it doesn't make you good at the other at all. In fact, it probably makes you worse. But the reason we wanted to bring this up, specifically, I think we both had this experience of like, we're really excited about D&D. And if you're excited about D&D, people will kind of come up to you and be like, what is this thing? And those are the people you want to run for. Definitely. And it, it comes to mind too, uh, just in life, you have loved ones that you want to share your passion with, your hobby. If you're anything like me and Ariel, uh, Dungeons and Dragons is the only thing you're capable of talking about <laughs> because it just occupies so much of your passion and uh, your enjoyment and your loved ones are going to want to share that with you and mo more often than not those will actually be the the hardest people to run dungeons and dragons for because they probably don't have an extensive board game and video game background yeah i've run dnd for a lot of people um most of them are new i like to run with my coworkers. it's just like a way to get to know the people around me but it is funny that the one person that I've run for that like kind of at a bad time was the person was my my sister who I like love so much and really wanted to do a good job for. And I ended up like kind of not not doing well. So I think that, she, you know, I really wanted to share this thing with her and I got too in my own head about it. Knowing how to run the game for somebody who doesn't have the same background as you is so rewarding when it goes right. And we're going to do, I think, a few episodes or pieces about running the game for new players. But today, the specific technique that we want to impart to you is using memory slots effectively when running the game for new players. Yeah. So you brought this concept up to me when we were talking just about D&D. And what I didn't get at first is this is actually just a, this is not a D&D thing. This is like a psychology term. So can you kind of explain like the psychology term to me so I, before we like start getting into the D&D application of it? Definitely. And uh, I'll preface this with I am not a psychologist, but the, the concept is fairly simple. And I think it, it makes sense and it uh, feels natural. The idea of memory slots is that humans have a certain number of things that they can remember in their working short-term memory before those things get turned into long-term memory and then you just have access to those things whenever you want. The magic number seems to be about seven things. You can remember seven things in your short-term memory before you have to start replacing other things in your short-term memory. So the example here is you introduce a character in the beginning of the game, your players pick up seven new things that they need to remember between all of your different plot points and the things that their characters can do. And before you know it, they've forgotten the name of an important character that you introduced in the beginning of the game. So if it's in your working memory, you only have these like seven slots available. But as soon as something goes to your long-term memory, 
uh, it, it's there and it doesn't count towards those seven. That's correct. The way of thinking about it, I think, or a fun way for me is that throughout the course of my lifetime, I was able to remember seven at a time, the names of all 151 original Pokemon. And now I have access to those names and I would love to replace that knowledge with something else, <laughs> but it is there permanently for the rest of forever. Um, however, if you were to give me the list of all of those names without me knowing any of them to start, I would be able to remember perhaps about seven of them. And if I wanted to remember an eighth, it would require that I forget one of the others. Yeah, so I'm thinking about D&D and there is nowhere close to seven things to remember. It's like, if I'm trying to picture it now, there's like maybe a hundred things I tell somebody before we start playing D&D. Like, how do you pare that down to seven things? Yeah, so I think I think what you really need to do is be very selective. So um, what we can do is we can talk about a few examples of ways that we can limit ourselves as DMs to uh, increase the quality of the session that we're running. So particularly in the when we're talking about new players, it's it's so much harder to run D&D for new players because in addition to the story that you're trying to deliver, their working memory is used up just remembering the the basic rules. And like you said, there's way more than seven things to remember in the basic rules. Yeah, I often don't even try to tell like a very coherent story the first time I'm playing like because I know uh, they have so much work to do just to get to the table and like and play the game. They they're not going to be able to follow the story. Like I, I just try to put something like fun, like an activity, rather than like a, an adventure. You know. Definitely. So uh, when I'm pitching the game to new players, and and I've had a lot of experimentation with this uh, over the years. I've run the game now for I think about uh, it's somewhere between like twenty and twenty five new players the last time I counted it out. And you've actually run the game for close to 30 new players now. So when, when, I, when I'm trying to hook someone, but also kind of like set their expectations, what I'll do is I will relate it, the game, to as many things that they have access to in long-term memory as possible, as, as just a general rule. And a particular way that I do that is by relating as much of the game as I can to pop culture. So when I'm pitching the game, I say, hey, are you interested in this collaborative storytelling experience where you play as a character similar to heroes that you are familiar with in pop culture, whether that be Jack Sparrow, whether that be um, Daenerys from Game of Thrones, or even like Sherlock Holmes? Did that, did that like actually work? Like, did you have somebody come and sit down and like try to do a Jack Sparrow impression at the table? No, I haven't. I've, I haven't had anybody say, oh, I want, I, I want to be specifically uh, Jack Sparrow. But I, I did have one of my coworkers, she came to me and she said uh, she wasn't interested in playing until she read the line, like where she, she could be Daenerys. And all of a sudden that completely hooked her she was like how do i how can i do this how like i want i want this um and it was uh from there um she actually did tr very much try to just like embody that character when she was playing yeah i think that this like maybe is like a really controversial opinion because i feel like all the time i hear it's like okay um let's set the expectations for playing dungeons and dragons like you're not 
you know, you're not like some hero from a fictional tale. Like, uh, if you try to be this too much, then like it won't work because the D and D rules aren't the same as like the rules in like The Witcher or in uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Blah blah blah. Like, w- like, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that I I agree with that when we're talking about running the game for experienced players. I think that running the game for new players is a completely different animal. And when you start to think about all of the rules that they need to keep track of. So we're talking about like, how do I attack something? How, wh- how many skill checks do I have? What, what, what do I add these numbers to? What is a D? What is a D12? Like, what is the, the letter D in front of 12 mean? If you can clear a, a huge number of memory slots for that player to remember these details that you're putting in front of them by allowing them to just rely completely on their long-term memory of a character that they know well inside and out from pop culture, you are giving them an amazing gift. Uh, it, it's just going, they're going to have a much better time playing and they'll actually be able to, they'll actually be able to role play, which it's crazy to think about, but like all the rules just get in the way of that experience, which is the thing that you're trying to hook them with. Every game has rules. The rules don't bring us back to Dungeons and Dragons. It's the storytelling. Yeah. So you said like the D in D12 could take up a memory slot. Like, is it, is it actually that? like that precise, like I'm thinking about how I talk to my new players about D&D and I, I really try to relate this idea of like rolling to hit and rolling for damage as like the whole attack and try to create that as like one coherent concept for them. I use the same words that like wizards, I think smartly did where you roll to hit, roll to attack, roll. Um, that way they, they think about these things together in the same way. Like, are they... Like, is the memory slot so fine-grained that those are different memory slots and that takes up two of my memory slots? It it varies from person to person, right? So if you're someone who has experience with games that involve attacks, the idea of trying to hit someone and then when you hit them dealing damage might be something that's already in your long-term memory. If you've ever played a Fire Emblem game, your character has two statistics. It's accuracy and then their damage that they do. So for for per on a per player basis, it may not even occupy any of their memory slots. But someone who has no experience, they may occupy all seven of their memory slots just trying to remember for like the first hour of the game which dice relates to which number. Which is why for new players, I've actually given them a piece of sh- a piece of paper and created little. Uh, like circles to put their dice back down into and had each one of them labeled with uh, the numbers that they were. And I think this goes back to uh, an, an idea that we touched on in the very beginning, which is that running the game for new players is totally different. You are responsible for their good time. And I know that that that's probably very controversial to say, but without you, they will not have a good time. So you kind of need to treat each player as an individual case um, and realize how many memory slots they're going to be using up just to just to sit at the table and be engaged with the story and not be worrying about all the things on their their sheet. One thing that I will do when I'm trying to bring a player that I think has very little uh, long-term memory that they can bring to bear at the table, is I will simplify their character 
as much as possible. And as a rule, we will always set up their character before that first session. So that way, their character, their abilities, what they're able to do can be committed to long-term memory before they arrive at the table for the adventure. Uh, so that way, all of their short-term memory, or at least as much of it as possible, can be committed to the adventure. Yeah, so what do you do before the session to, to set that up? Yeah, so what I'll do is I will uh, pitch pitch the game to them and find out just like from a story perspective, what type of hero gets them really excited. For someone who wants to do a lot of preparation, they're never going to be a problem. Like if, if you're someone who finds out about Dungeons and Dragons and before your first session, you go home and you watch a YouTube video that gives you a, like a synopsis of every class and you go and watch an episode of Critical Role, that's not the type of person that we're worried about. They're going to commit everything that they need to know to long-term memory before they even show up at the table. We're talking about someone who doesn't really know what they're getting themselves into. They might have kids. They might work two jobs. They don't have time to go and learn all the rules. So you need to be very tactical about what rules you're going to even present to them. So what I'll do is I'll tell them about how much prep time is necessary to play the game on a per class basis. And what I will mandate after after a lot of experimentation, this is a rule that I learned through trial and error. If someone is only willing to commit about a half hour to 45 minutes to the game, I will demand that they not play a spellcaster. Yeah, so this rule, you told me about it a little bit before, and I think it's kind of crazy. I, I really want you to pitch this to me because my like, ethos as a DM is always like never say no, you know, like yes and what like you want to do this, you're excited about it, like I'll, I'll, I'll make it work. That's like kind of been my, that's how I kind of approach uh, these players uh, that are new that want to do something. So like, how, how do you tell them no? Like what, what are you doing there? Yeah, so if, so first of all, a lot of the time they don't know any better. Uh, so when a player says they want to play a spellcaster, they don't know what they're, what they're actually asking for because they, they haven't read the spellcasting rules. When they're saying, I want to play a spellcaster, they're not thinking in their head, ooh, I enjoy the versatility that comes with playing a wizard. I like having an answer to every um, thing that could pop up. What they're usually doing is they're envisioning some fictional character that is a spellcaster that they want to embody. So first things first, I'll ask them, why they want to play a spellcaster. And if it's because they want to be able to shoot stuff with magic, perfect. We can we can replace whatever their basic attack was going to be almost no matter what with the the mechanical equivalent that is just a spell. That's like a blaster spell. Oh, so you actually like give them a fighter or a ranger or like rogue like class, but you just skin it differently. Yep, that's one of the options. And then uh, and a lot of the times, just through asking questions and finding out more about their fantasy, it turns out that they, they don't even want to play a spellcaster. They'll say, no, I really want to play a spellcaster. And then they'll describe something that isn't a spellcaster. And, and I can give that to them without having to actually tell them no. But I'll be honest with them. I'll say, mechanically, you're not going to play a wizard, but you'll still be able to do all the things that you just described that you want to be able to do. Yeah, I actually think this is so genius that like when you're really thinking about um, the mechanics of the classes, when you're thinking about tropes and storytelling and playing at the table, for a first time sitting down playing D&D, &D, you don't have to marry those to 
the rules for those classes. Is somebody who's sitting down and playing D&D one time, is it better for them to use the mechanics for a rogue than use the mechanics for a wizard, but just tell them all their things are magical? Like, does it actually matter that they're not playing the wizard that D&D wrote? Now that you're now that you talk about it that way, that makes perfect sense. Like, of course, it doesn't matter that they're using the specific rules for spell casting that D and D has decided are the rules. Like, those are a freaking different system altogether. Like, the the rules for spell casting in D and D are a, a separate game, so they can they can still be a wizard, just using the rogue action mechanics because it doesn't matter. They they can still be a wizard with a rogue stuff. Yeah, if you're if you have a player that sh- I've 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 made this mistake um, where I give a player who doesn't have the physical time to learn spellcasting mechanics a spellcasting character because they promised me uh, that they would figure it out or they'd look it up and then on the day of the game they tell me hey I'm sorry I didn't have time I understand if you don't want me to play of course I still want them to play uh, but then they show up and they actually like accidentally. Um, lessen the experience of everybody else at the table because whenever their turn comes around they ask again how their spells work and which spells they can use um so it's it's very important to to be very tactical about what rules you're actually going to be putting in front of your players because they have seven they have seven memory slots and uh it's it's really hard to, to manage those memory slots, just with the basic rules of the game that apply to every class. Yeah, I love this idea, actually, like now that I'm thinking about it more, because it, it's basically what I do when I work with new spellcasters. One of the things that I try to do when I'm playing new D&D is really take on as much of the prep as I can, um, especially when I'm playing with people that are my fr- like my close friends. I'm willing to do that work. So what I'll do is I'll just talk to them, have a quick conversation, like, what are you excited about? These are the kinds of things you can do. Which one of them are most interesting to you? And usually they'll have like some moment, you know, where I like, I'll try to interact with them, tell them like the barbarian gets to rage and the rogue gets to like kind of be a thief or an assassin. And I'll try to just use these like kind of buzzwords, give them a whole picture of the class and just like one simple word. And usually one of them like piques their interest, like, oh yeah, I want to do that. I just work with them to make that happen in the way that they are excited for and try to make it as simple as possible, which is ostensibly just like rewriting the class altogether. Definitely. And I think that if some people might, they might not say this, but it might be in their subconscious and it, it prevents them from, from working in this way. But a lot of people might worry about balance, right? Like, ah, yeah. Oh, you want to be Daenerys. You want to have a pet dragon. Uh, if I give you a pet dragon, that's overbalanced because that's a beast master uh, mechanic. And now all of a sudden you have these extra powers. If your players are first time players, balance is out the window. There is no shot that your players play those characters as effectively as they were balanced to be played. You can give them whatever powers they want. They will not break the mechanics of your game as first time players. If I'm the DM at a first time, a game with everybody first time players, like I know that like mechanics are like out the window and I'm just going to be the DM. I'm going to use my superpowers to just say things happen at the game because there's no way I'm going to be able to predict what's going to happen beforehand. Yeah, exactly. So I think you've actually on this very subject, Ariel, you've actually used a technique to to kind of almost enumerate the memory slots as far as a mechanics on paper goes for giving like new character sheets to your players. 
Yeah, so this is what this is um in a like very exact way what I mean when I say I'm gonna take on the work. So I didn't know that this was like a memories loss thing, but it fits perfectly. So this there's a DM that Ray and I both love. His name is Matt Colville. You might have heard of him. He gives lots of great advice for running the game. And one of my favorite things that he's done is he put out um, a like a pitch for all the different classes. And that pitch is just three words or a sentence. And it gives you for each class, what is the exciting thing that this class can do? So for, like I said before, Barbarian, it's Rage. And, and it just kind of says, so I go through them that document. The next thing I do is I take that same concept and actually put the character sheet in those terms. So I'll actually write out a simplified character sheet with the player. And what that will do, the roles, like I won't even include, because it's so many words on the page, right? There's like athletics, acrobatics, perception, all these things. I'll ask the player what they're excited about. Like which of these skills do they want to be good at? That's like the proficiencies question. And when they're choosing the proficiencies, I, I just put those on the page, right? And so they know that this is a tool that they're excited to use. Uh, if for rogues, I'll put their expertises on. Are they excited about sneak attack? I'll put that on. Are they excited about these tools? I'll put that on. If not, I won't. Like, I will leave it off, even though it's a thing that their class can do. So I, I try to really make a character sheet that is based on what the player is excited about and leave everything else off. Yeah, I think that's genius. So right when you think of a character sheet that you might put in front of a player if you're not thinking tactically you might know that they're not going to perform a bunch of the skills on that list anything that they have a plus zero to or a plus one at there's a good chance there's someone else in the party who's better suited for that skill why not just remove it why risk uh having your rogue new player remember that they have a plus one to athletics when they're never going to roll an athletics check. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and, but here's the thing, right? Like anytime that like something does come up, like we're at, I'm at the table. Like I, I know these things, I'm the DM. Like if they, anything that else that does come up, I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. I'm saying I will be there to help you. You know, these are the things that you are excited about. So these are the things I'm going to give to you. Anything else you're not sure about, we'll talk at the table and be like, oh yeah, like, the rogue went off on their own and got stuck alone and now needs to like move this boulder because you know they got trapped in a room uh and they can't get out like i'll say oh well you don't have a bonus to this but you can make an athletics check roll a g20 i'm there at the table i'm not removing these things from the game i'm saying that your cheat sheet should be a cheat sheet your cheat sheet shouldn't be the rules of dungeons and dragons absolutely and i think it goes back to something that is worth remembering always is that the core of Dungeons & Dragons, what makes Dungeons & Dragons so special from a storytelling element, is completely separate from uh, like the very crunchiness of the math, right? Like at the end of the day, I'm the hero of the story or a hero of the story. I want to do a thing. I need some sort of element of chance to decide whether or not I succeed or fail. Uh, and then if you want to layer on uh, just even one more layer, I'm good at some things and I'm not good at other things, you maybe like, you can just give them an extra bonus. So if you're flipping a coin rather than rolling dice, if you're good at something, flip the coin twice, you only need a heads once, right, to succeed, like flip with advantage. Yeah, like, oh my god, uh, this point is so true because I actually secretly hate the d20. I love rolling d20s. I think it's great. But like I could talk about this for four hours. Like I do a whole episode about how the different mechanics in this game make no sense to me. 
And so, yeah, like flipping a coin a few times probably makes more sense in a lot of the places of a D20. Like, is it possible that your scrawny wizard has, you know, like a 25% chance of being better at an athletics check than your barbarian? Like, what? I don't know. So, so the mechanics don't make sense to me, even though they're balanced and Wizards has worked on these for years and I love 5th edition, like, the mechanics don't make sense anyways. D- don't throw out your, your fun because this thing is a rule. You know, I think that's not surprising to any DM, but you can, you can go really far with that idea. So I'm curious, oh, I was about to get into something else, but okay, okay. So if you're, you're thinking about all these memory slots and, and you, you've kind of started talking about like, these memory slots, you try to pare them down as much as possible before the game. What do you do about the memory slots during the game? Are you trying to keep the things that they remember while they're playing to a minimum? Uh, Definitely. So uh, with all Dungeons and Dragons, your preparation is everything and your preparation is nothing, right? So like your your preparation uh, will affect the value of the finals, uh, like what actually happens at the table, but you can be guaranteed that nothing will go directly as planned, right? Everything, everything is just there as a tool for your preparation to help with what happens at the game. But with that preparation, a thing that I will do before the game and during the game is if there's a plot hook or, uh, or like a mystery or an intrigue, I am counting off the number of memory slots that are required to solve that piece of the game. And seven is your magic number. Your one player won't probably ever have all seven slots available to work on that mystery, but across all of your players, hopefully (laughs) with their free slots, uh, they can like pick up all the clues. So what I'll do is uh, I'll sometimes I'll get too engrossed in the world building from like a writing perspective and I'll have all these locations and all these characters and all these like items or clues or things that happen. And then if I, if I were to list out how many memory slots were required to keep all of that information in working memory, if I presented it all at once to the players, there's no shot that they're going to remember everything. So if you're a DM, even, even running for experienced players, and you find that your players are not remembering the names of your characters, they are not remembering the names of your locations, they're not picking up on hints, it's likely because if you were to count out your memory slots, it is way more than seven that you are dropping in front of them. Yeah. So like, what are, what are you actually doing behind the table? Do you have like, uh, like a, a, a place where you're taking notes about this? Like, how do you, how do you actually keep track of it? I'm imagine I have so many things to do behind the screen as a DM. Like, like, how do you implement that? Absolutely. So first things first, your NPCs low, right? Because each person is going to then have things about them. And for each person you introduce to the game, your slots are going to explode because your players, if you're anything like my players, will ask what that NPC's dad's name is. They'll ask where they're from. And all of a sudden they're occupied, they're working against themselves to occupy their memory slots with things that I know they may not think they're useless and they may actually love them because they're creating their own fun by putting me in the hot seat. But now those things are occupying their memory slots. There's even less of a chance that they're going to pick up the plot thread. So something that you could do is you could have a box uh, like seven or to 10 boxes on a sheet of paper. And as you're introducing character names, as you're introducing the names of places, materials, things, items, 
you can be crossing off those boxes. And once you get to 10, you know that you need to really start not introducing new information. The, the setting is saturated at that point. You need to carry the game forward without introducing new elements. Some techniques that you can use to avoid saturation is to avoid giving your characters names or your NPCs interesting names. If there's a pirate on a ship and I want people to remember that character, but I don't want their name to occupy a memory slot, their name might be one leg Sam. And their their name is one leg. People call them one leg because he's got one leg. And like like that, like that's like from a storytelling perspective, that is disgusting, right? Like if a writer were to put that character in their book, you would be like, this is this is horrible. However, uh, the reason why it's so bad is because it's so obvious and your players will think it's hilarious. Uh, they're not going to care that like the writing could have been better. If anything, they'll probably internally be thankful that it's not another name for them to remember. Yeah, I I, I love this concept of like, oh, if it were writing, uh, it would be bad writing. But in the game, it's actually good because your goals for D&D are yeah, to have your characters like fill out their fantasy and do silly things. This is funny because I've lived this so many times with NPC names where if I want my, like my characters either remember a name or don't. And it's very obvious to me when they do, right? I'll have this character and he'll have some weird fantasy name. And I think it's actually, it doesn't even take up a memory slot because they refuse to remember it. Their memory slots are already so full. They're not going to replace the stuff that's meaningful to them. Um, with this person's name. So every time this, they talk to this person, like they'll be like, hey, Ariel, what was his name again? And I'll have to retell them the name. So at that point, yeah, just call them one leg Sam. Like if they're not going to remember it anyways, who cares? And um, But then the opposite is if I know that I do want them to remember their name, I'll make I'll just make the name stupid because they'll laugh and that will be memorable. I remember like one of my like characters favorite names was Darjeeling and because I was just like somebody was drinking Darjeeling tea at the table and they knew that I obviously didn't care about this person's name but it was just like a joke and so they like remembered the joke you know more than remembering the name. I think I think the memory slots is a great way of explaining the phenomenon which is always uh, when when you need to think of an NPC on the fly, when your players force you to improvise an NPC, you can be guaranteed that that is the NPC that they will not only interact with the most, but they will try to come up with an excuse for bringing them along on the adventure just to force you to have to play them all the time. And I think it's because part of it is it's so easy to remember the things about that character because they're so goofy they're so simple they're not these like multi-syllable fantasy character names so i think in summary just to summarize kind of my technique uh running for experienced players and new players but definitely for new players is if you have a plot hook or a, or an adventure or a story that you're trying to pitch to the players there should be seven things to remember if it's if it's all going to be in one session. If your if your campaign spaced off spaced out across multiple sessions, that's fine. All that stuff is getting committed to long term memory. But on a per session basis, there should be seven things to remember. 
Ariel, I think you mentioned that you also have uh, a technique or two that you use when you're running the game that has to do with memory slots. Yeah, so when you brought it up, I started really thinking about how I handle this at my table. And my my favorite technique also sort of inspired by Matt Colwell, so, um, but not his D&D advice, but his writing advice. And I think this is really just like top-notch writing advice if anybody out there is writing, but it works great for D&D too. Like, if you are going to describe something to your players, don't spend time describing something that they are already going to have a picture of in their head. If I want to tell somebody, a player, they're entering a bar, I can tell them it's just like, oh yeah, it's like that bar that we used to go to Four Horses, you know, like, or Slago. And then like all my players already have this picture. It's their long-term memory. It's not their working memory. And they already have the picture of the bar. If, if I wanted to be like an old time fantasy bar, I might say it's like an old timey rustic bar. Like I'm not going to spend details about like the type of wood they used at the tavern or that it has, you know, a sign outside that um, hangs from, you know, chain links and swings in the wind. Like that is imagery, but I'm, I'm just wasting their working memory on something they could picture if I just like tell them a name of a real bar. But then, so like, don't describe the things that don't matter. Just tell, take them to the bar and right away, the first thing you describe to them is the thing that does matter. Like, don't worry about the rest. And so like, if I'm bringing my players to a bar, like this is kind of the scene I'll set up. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a like a dive bar. It's like, you know, like Slago that, you know, we used to go to. But weirdly in the back, there's a full theater, red curtain and all. And you see people on stage performing and above them, there hangs this giant gem that projects the scene and sound of waves in the distance. And as the gem turns, they finally get to shore and suddenly you hear a port city in the background and a picture on the face of the gem is went from like blue big waves to the docks of a, a city. And now I'm, I'm describing something magical and fantastical and weird. And they, they can forget about the bar. Like they don't have to, they don't have to do the work of replacing their like knowledge about the bar with their knowledge about the theater and the bar. Like their, the, their image of the bar is from their long-term memory. And that, I think just like leveraging that is so useful. Yeah, definitely. And to your point, if you start to describe so when you tell them you've arrived at an old town rustic bar, each of your players now has a fairly crisp image of the place that they've arrived at. They will all be very different, but that doesn't matter, right? Because like one player's image of the world that they're playing in differing from another's, they're not going to know that unless they start really being like, wait, like how many tables are in your picturing of the bar? And they're just never going to do that. However, once you start describing the setting, you you undermine their vision of the place that they've walked into because you are contradicting things that they thought about the place. So if you're going to start contradicting what just comes to mind from long-term memory, now you have to describe the entire bar. Otherwise, it'll be like shallow and empty because now they've, they've thrown out their long-term memory vision of where they are and they're replaced with this five sentence description. Yeah, let your players fill in the blank. They they will have the crispest image of uh, like way more than you could describe on your own if you just tell them, picture the bar. Definitely. And I think maybe 
once you're running for extremely experienced players and you're trying to get into an element of um, not leading your players, you could experiment with kind of like filling out the details of a fantasy setting such that they don't know what pieces are important. But I can't think of a worse experience, a worse experience for new players. You're, for your new players, you're guiding them through this, this world. You should only be pitching them with the things that are important because they don't know anything else. They don't know what it feels like to play D&D where the adventure is a sandbox and you're trying to uncover it along the way. Tell them where the next destination is for your new players for that first session absolutely. You want them to be progressing through the story. I can't think of a greater failure in a new session than letting your players stew on something mundane in their first session, because that's all they have to compare it to. That's it. That's what D&D is for them. You might lose them. They might never want to engage in the hobby ever again if you let them inspect a chair for an hour. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it's, it's one of the things that people think about with D&D, they're like, oh, it needs to be realistic. Oh, it needs to be open world. I don't want to force my players to do anything. Like, if you have new players, force them to do something. Like, they're not going to know what to do without you. You are their guide. In other games, like, you don't have to be the guide. If you have new players, like, they do not know what to do. Tell them what there is to do. Don't don't ask them to put in the work of understanding that, like, oh, in the world, there are all these things. Like, tell them. Just tell them. They don't care. Tell them there is a dragon, you know, a block away. Tell them there is a spooky haunted mansion. They're not good. They don't, they don't know to walk around and figure these things out for themselves. Like they're trying to figure out how to roll a perception check. They don't, they don't have the ability to think of interact with your world in the same way that an experienced player does. Exactly. Ariel, I think you mentioned earlier that you actually, which this was very interesting to me because it's contradictory to the kind of like the philosophy I follow. You actually, there's one memory slot that you want your players to be occupied with the entire time that they're playing. Yeah. So to me, this is so obvious. My idea is if I ask a player, like, what are you excited about to come play D&D? Oh, like D&D is a game where you can do lots of improv and they, they tell me like, oh, well, I really like I really like Sherlock Holmes. I really like solving mysteries. I'm like, great. That's awesome. You can be Sherlock Holmes in this game of D&D. It's a world of pretend. You can be whatever you want. And that gets them really excited. I want them to remember that. Like, I want them to remember that when they come sit down to the table that they were excited about being Sherlock Holmes. They were excited about coming to the table. I, I don't know, right? Like, do you think that's worthy of a whole memory slot? Definitely, right? Especially for a new player uh, because it's so easy to, for them to get caught up in what they're not doing right, what they don't know how to do, they could very easily discard that because it seems not important to them playing the game, right? Like mechanically playing the game. Yeah, but it's like actually the most important thing, right? Like they they might be worried that, oh, it's important that I remember how to roll a d20 and add my proficiency modifier plus my attribute bonus because like you told me that rule. And so I, I don't want to seem like I'm not paying attention. So I'm going to I'm going to work hard to remember all the things you've told me when in reality, like, no, I'm telling you those things because that's how the game works and it, it will be helpful for us to play. But the thing I actually want you to remember is that you want to be Sherlock Holmes. You want, you want to solve the mystery. You are going to go around and be analytically engaged and look at every possible clue that I've set up for you. Like that creates more fun at D&D than, um, than a fluency with the rules. If you mess up the rules, I'll help you out. 
if um, and we'll have fun. If you mess up playing the character you were excited to play, like that means you're not going to have fun. Right. Game over at that point. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is a huge time commitment. And the thing that we get out of it isn't walking away from the game being like, ah, yeah, now I know how to play Dungeons and Dragons. It's the memories. It's the laughs. That's why if a player is excited to play a character from fiction that they know that's committed to their long-term memory, that's the biggest gift. Those are the people who consistently have the most fun when they're new players because they... They could be worried about the mechanics and stuff, but when a when a thing pops up in the story that they recognize as being connected to their character and like their character would like respond to that in a special way, they light up. They engage in that way. They don't ask themselves, ah, well, like what what did my character do when they were a kid that in 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 uh, informs how they would respond to this situation. They've seen their character in cinema do the thing that they want to now do or try to do and then succeed in doing. And then their their fantasy is realized, right? Because they they are the hero that they have seen. Yeah, I think this, like I work so hard as a DM to get my players to react um, earnestly to the material, like to feel like they can just react the way that they want to react or the way their character would react and not, um, and and do that in the moment. And I feel like, Anything that gets in the way of that is getting in the way of good D&D. And anything that, like, is a tool to get them to do that is, like, the tool I care about the most. And so, like, that's why I really like your idea that I maybe wouldn't tell to an experienced player or maybe would, like, have a warning of just, like, using a character from fiction. If there's an experienced player coming to another table of experienced players and they, like, really want to... Um, play out the story of Spartacus because that's like a movie that they love. And, you know, I would say like, okay, like, I think we can do this, but let's talk to the other players and blah, blah, blah. Like if a new player first day, like one shot is saying me they want to be Spartacus. Like, I think you're right. I think just be like, hell heck yeah, you're Spartacus. Uh, you, you are, you know, like fighting for the common man. Like, let's get you out there. Like do it, be that person. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely been, some of the people who have had the most fun have been uh, the people who haven't had to take the time uh, to to have to obsess over what they do. When I ask them, what do you what would you like to do? They just know and they dive in and they engage in the story and they they're bold because they don't need to they don't need to ask what their character is capable of doing. Jack Sparrow can swing off of uh, like ropes on ships. They know he can do that. So they don't need to ask me if that's something that their character knows how to do. Yeah, and it's so successful in so many ways. Like, I, I don't want to be, like, being prescriptive about um, being in character. That's not what I'm talking about here, and I, I don't think it's what you're talking about either having played with you and knowing that you're not always in character. Like, we're not asking these players to be Jack Sparrow so that they can talk with a funny accent and be in character all the time. We just want them to know what to do, even if they describe that in third person. So, like, they say, like, oh, okay, so um, my character runs to the top of the lookout on the ship and shoots his, uh, like, dagger into the sail and rips it down the sail so that the ship isn't going, like, fast anymore and, and his my other players can catch up in their life, though. You know, like, none of that is in character, but it's, like, if somebody said that to me at the table their first time playing D&D, I would be... Floored. I would be so thrilled that they were engaging with the story like that. Well, I hope we've persuaded you to be more conscious of your players' memory slots, particularly when it comes to running Dungeons & Dragons for new players. 
Hopefully some of the tips and techniques we discussed with you are useful and allow you to improve the quality of your first-time player experiences. Until next time, I'm Ray O'Connor. I'm Ariel Rasco. Thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen. It is licensed under CC by Attribution. You can find Hoist and more of Cohen's work on the Free Music Archive. If you enjoyed our show today, please like, subscribe, and review us on your platform of choice. If you want to join into the discussion, you can contact us at our email, runningofftherails1974 at gmail.com. You can also find us on our website, runningofftherails.com, our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails, or Twitter, Running Off the Rails. Mm-hmm.